everyone and welcome to Energy Explored. This podcast covers the challenges of achieving a carbon neutral global economy, cutting emissions of gases and pollutants and setting up new energy systems. Join Reed Smith lawyers and guest speakers as they shed light on the most important trends in emissions control and new fuels. Tune in as we follow the ever-evolving journey through the transition of energy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reed Smith's Energy Explored podcast. My name is Todd Maiden. I'm a partner in the Energy and Natural Resources Practice Group here, a resident in San Francisco. And I'm joined today by uh, Casey Snyder. Casey's in our Pittsburgh office. The Energy Explored podcast touches on a, a wide variety of sustainable, clean energy, well, a variety of, of energy issues, but more and more sustainable, clean energy issues. Uh, today's podcast is on the topic of greenwashing. Uh, and, and the reason this came up is that more and more we, we've sort of seen from our own practice an increase in the uh, uptick in what uh, we call greenwashing claims. And because of that, we felt it might be worth to, to share with others what we see as increased business risks associated with greenwashing. I, I think the reason these are coming about is that because of a, an uptick in the environmental, social, and governance movement, there are more statements about a company's sustainability either in its operations or in the products or it may, products it makes or the services it provides. And therefore, I think there's more opportunity for fact-checking for others to test those statements and, and in essence, bring claims about them. So with that, I'll, I'll pass over to Casey. You can say a, a little, maybe a word about yourself and get us a little deeper into what we mean by the term greenwashing. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. My name is Casey Snyder. I'm an associate in the Energy and Natural Resources Group based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And today's topic is going to delve into greenwashing claims, how those could affect your business and pose risks to your business, as well as some steps to mitigate those risks. Chances are, if you've tuned into the news in the past year or so, you've likely discovered an article discussing the latest environmental, social, and governance issues. And most likely one of those topics would cover greenwashing claims. So at the highest level, a greenwashing claim or the term greenwashing refers to the practice of making false representations regarding a business's practice or products often relating to topics under the ESG umbrella. And so businesses can get into legal trouble over those claims, which could be made in you know, an annual sustainability report or as part of a, a marketing effort for one of its products or businesses. And what I find real interesting is, is yes, there have always been claims regarding misrepresentation, fraud, etc. But if you look in the past five years or so, lawsuits and enforcement actions with the term, quote, greenwashing in them have really started to come about in the past couple years. So this is, this is a topic of high priority, I would say, for a lot of businesses. And so to delve in a little deeper and, and to orient ourselves discussing the types of claims 
that we often see in greenwashing lawsuits or in, or enforcement actions. There's a there's a couple to think of. Uh, first is a general environmental benefit greenwashing claim. So this relates to a statement that a product, for example, is quote good for the environment. Another claim that you could see in one of these lawsuits or enforcement actions is an overstatement of environmental attribute, uh, meaning there's some type of statement that says this product reduces electricity consumption, uh, and, and that may actually not be true. Another area that we're seeing is comparative claims. So in comparative claims, a product is labeled new and improved regarding something like environmental impact or sustainability as compared to a company's prior product. Uh, that was, you know, maybe there were some issues with that. And now this new product has, a, they're claiming has addressed these issues. Or you could see a claim, a comparative claim where a business is saying our product is, you know, contains 50% less of a certain chemical than a competitor. So, so those are some some ideas under the comparative claims for allegations that we're seeing. And Todd, there's also direct and implicit claims. And uh, I think you could make some good points on on the difference between those claims if you if you want to speak to that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, traditionally, the type of greenwashing claims we we saw originally dealt with a specific statement of. This product is made with uh, 100% organic content, or this product is recyclable, or this product, you know, something where you could measure it. It's a clear statement, and, and it's either true or false, and those claims are still there. But what we've seen recently is an uptick in what I call sort of implicit claims, where the plaintiff is saying, that you were silent about a negative aspect of your product. So, for example, if a product contains plastic, the plaintiff may say, well, you knew fully well that the plastic was made from petroleum products and that that, that is, petroleum is bad for the environment, or that the plastic breaks down into small microparticles, which eventually get washed out into the ocean and impact fish. And therefore, because you, you were silent, you failed to tell us the negative impacts of this, that we, you, you were impliedly saying it was good when it was really bad. They're bringing those kinds of claims. Much, I think it's a little harder for them to prove, but it's, it's harder to defend. And these are a little more complicated claims. So just want you to be, be aware of those. And also, I think there's sort of a relationship with just general ESG statements that corporations make about uh, the reduction their their carbon footprint uh, or their expenditures on on environmental sustainability that type of thing and the, the corporation may be making overall advancements and strides but it's easier for the plaintiff to pick up on one aspect or element of the company where maybe there isn't that that increase and they pick up on that and, and say, well, you, you know, you were, you're making a misstatement there. Anyway, so I'll, I'll leave it at that just because of time. The, the other thing I just wanted to, to point out is, you know, where we, 
where there are some parameters here or where you can get guidance. Federal Trade Commission, FTC, has has had guidance documents since 1992 on statements that you can make about environmental characteristics of your product or services. Those, those green guides are not formal regulations. That is truly guidance. They've been around since 1992. The most current version was published in 2012. One thing you should know is that in December of last year, the FTC opened themselves up to a public comment period for proposed amendments to the Green Guides. That comment period was extended, but just ended a few weeks ago in April. But the kind of areas that they're looking at and where I think we we are likely to see some changes in the Green Guides and FTC guidance on these types of statements deals with carbon offsets and climate change issues. There is already guidance in the Green Guides on this, but whether the revised guidance should maybe provide additional information on related claims and issues in carbon offset and climate change subject matter. The term recyclable, what does what does that mean? When can you make an unqualified uh, statement that the product is recyclable? That, that's been an area of attracting a lot of disputes. The term recycled content, whether you can make an unqualified claim about recycled content, it's particularly confusing or can be confusing to uh, consumers about what constitutes sort of what's called pre-consumer and post-industrial content uh, in products. So maybe some clarification there. And, and then the FTC opened it up for, hey, just tell us anything you want. Where do you think we should have more clarity or more guidance on the terms compostable, degradable, what it, what constitutes ozone-friendly, the term organic or sustainable. All of these things are qualitative and provide for some ambiguity. And so that's, that's what's going on and, and look for uh, changes and developments uh, in, in that area. Casey, maybe you could say a few words about actual greenwashing claims and litigation and, and what to look for. Yeah, yeah. To to raise a couple points under this topic, um, and actually to to circle back on on a point I wanted to raise is I think the discussion of the FTC green guides and thinking about that issue a little more broadly really gets us to the point where we're realizing there are no standards that are binding on companies, you know, in in the U.S. or you know a, a binding standard internationally on how companies should be evaluating whether or not a a statement or a label is in fact greenwashing. So I think companies are left with navigating a, a sort of patchwork effect of uh, you know what jurisdiction has passed what guidance and whether that can be relied on as a matter of law or in you know in conducting their business. And just to just to point out, Todd, they're the FTC green guides. There's they're not binding. That's is that right? They're just guidance, right? I mean, the the FTC has clear regulations that, and and you can be subject to administrative penalties, fines, injunctive relief for for making false statements about products. There's this overarching public policy about truth in advertising. Very nothing controversial about that. It's just when they 
when they drill down, you know, if you're if you're selling a coffee cup, it's got to be a coffee cup. If you say there's a dozen units in a box, there's got to be a dozen. You know, that, that those, those kinds of things, that's easy. But when you get into statements about the environmental attributes or the health and safety attributes of a product, and it could be a service as well, uh, then that's where the green guides, the, the, the attempt is to provide some working parameters and and by and large they do we we give a lot of advice based on those parameters but it's still it's it's not it's not a bright line but it's it's uh it's helpful for avoiding risk yeah and to to think about that point there's no private cause of action under the ftc guidance so a lot of the claims we're seeing filed in court or the enforcement actions that are being brought or are relying on a lot of other statutes or you know other theories of, of of violations of law and just to to name a few that we've seen uh, the first being consumer protection related claims that have been alleged under state law uh, often states have adopted their own version of the federal uniform Deceptive Trade Practices Act, which is a, a federal uniform law that governs deceptive trade practices, and states have adopted versions of, of this statute and added their own intricacies. But the statute is used by both citizens uh, who are consumers of the products, as well as NGOs and state attorneys general who are enforcing the requirements of these state consumer protection acts. And interestingly, I've seen some recent cases that have alleged uh, similar claims under local municipal administrative codes that regulate trade practices in a, a certain municipality. Breach of express warranty and breach of implied warranty claims are also common uh, in greenwashing actions, as well as un- unjust enrichment, fraud, including states with securities fraud statutes, like New York, for example, intentional or negligent misrepresentation claims, unfair competition claims, and more recently, we're seeing class actions being filed uh, alleging greenwashing issues. Then on that last point, the the class actions, I mean, that could be a whole separate podcast in terms of uh, just procedural issues that that arise in class actions, but it does take it up a notch in terms of of the complexity of a case and the the materiality of a case when it comes in as a a class action. So something to be aware of in terms of of that type of dynamic of the type of claim being brought. Yeah, I think the other thing I just wanted to mention, uh, which is touches on this, is kind of securities exchange commission regulations that could be be impacted or or be uh, uh, an issue for publicly traded corporations. So again, just trying to flag an issue for for listeners here. If you're a publicly traded corporation, you know that uh, you have to uh, in in your quarterly and annual statements you have to disclose material risks to shareholders or or potential investors in the company so that they can validly assess the uh, whether they want to invest in, in your company. 
Now, typically, any one greenwashing claim in and of itself, I don't think is necessarily going to rise to an occasion of, of for, for most publicly traded companies, of, of a dollar amount that may be material. But I think what you have to think through here, whether you're publicly traded or not, a lot of companies, their, their whole their whole basis or their, their whole marketing scheme is based around we are a a eco friendly company we are sustainable we uh, are selling ourselves the the whole marketing pitch is is around uh, integration with kind of environmental awareness and in types of the types of products they make organic content and so even if a individual greenwashing claim that the dollar value uh, may or the settlement value may or may not be a, a material risk, the impact that a, that a greenwashing claim could have on a on the public's perception of a company and and the lost credibility that you have could be material, and and therefore for that reason I just throw it out there in terms of of the the public relations. Uh, impact of these claims can be very significant and working with clients the senior management this is a this is a real hot button uh, item for them they do take this very seriously uh, and and other listeners should as well and then Casey so I'm sorry I kind of interrupted you there on the the greenwashing claims and litigation maybe you could go into not just the claims but maybe some of the the remedies yeah, so this this is a topic that's really interesting to me because you see some of the traditional remedies that are sought by plaintiffs in, in these enforcement actions or, or litigation disputes, but also there's some new, uh, very broad <laughs> injunctive relief that that plaintiffs are are, are seeking. Uh, so to name sort of the traditional remedies you would see in these lawsuits, you would obviously see claims uh, seeking attorney's fees, claims seeking civil penalties and administrative penalties, disgorgement of profits. But really interesting to me is the injunctive relief that attorneys general and, and plaintiffs are are seeking uh, from the court. Uh, that being first, a permanent injunction regarding those marketing practices that uh, allegedly violated the statute or you know the uh, that caused the violation of law. Second, being a permanent injunction requiring the company to rectify the issue that its practices have caused. So, trying to concept conceptualize what that would be, at, at least in my mind, could we be seeing something like a court ordered information campaign where a company is required to fix the the marketing statements, the misrepresentations allegedly that it, it made. And so that could be costly and, and very burdensome to a company. And you know, how do you even how do you even conceptualize how far you need to reach with that type of, of corrective action? So Todd, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, but that was a, a an interesting remedy that I saw in, in some of these claims. Well, I, I think just the, the quick response here, I'm, I'm working on uh, wearing a different hat. I'm working on several product recall issues with the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And if you, if you have to get into injunctive relief where 
for some reason you have to go out and recall a product because of mislabeling on it uh you know or change the packaging or something like that it's it is i think the the legal term is crazy expensive <laughs> and, and and again the the impact on you know it's the time energy the the impact on the public relations on, on the the value of of the the product name uh, can be at issue one other thing i just want to kind of tie tie together here is kind of corporate governance policies because and i mentioned esg issues and so you have a lot of senior management making some fairly broad claims about corporations and their commitment to environmental issues their commitment to sustainability their commitment to carbon neutrality all those things are great uh, but again those are the kinds of things where that's a very high level broad statement and the greenwashing claims are very specific and particular and get into the nuances and so you you really have to have this sort of better alignment of what is senior management saying at a very high level and what is possibly your marketing team saying uh, as the product is being pushed out are those are you having good communications are you integrated in in those policies and statements uh, because it can you know, impact well, a variety of things, corporate liability, but also director and officer liability. And, and on that, if, since I'm on a roll here, let me just uh, kind of wrap up with maybe some ways to manage some of these risks. So greenwashing claims have the potential to be insured risk matters. So if you get a claim in, you should think about tendering the, the defense and indemnification of that claim to your, your carrier. There are several different types of insurance products out there that conceivably could be beneficial to you, but you really have to analyze them very carefully. So most everyone's going to have a comprehensive general liability policy. It could have a rider on it that may deal with product liability claims or, or uh, even greenwashing claims. There are separate product liability policies. Many companies are going to have director and officer policies. The DNO policies are very good because they have they provide wrongful act coverage, and uh, and I think typically you think about that from shareholder and regulator suits. But arguably, if if it's a well formulated and articulated tender letter, you could get coverage for a greenwashing claim through your DNO policy if you're mindful of that. The CGL policy. This comprehensive general liability policy also could be useful in some things like comparative claims where somebody has uh, has made some comparative statement between their product and a competitor's product and and there and there's and maybe it's an overstatement the competitor sues you saying oh my gosh you've defamed us you've libeled us you've slandered us uh, because of your statements so now you're on you're on the receiving end of this uh, uh, defamation claim, well, that might be covered under a CGL policy, but you have to articulate it that way. So you don't necessarily want to, just because it's an environmental statement, you may not want to tee that up as an environmental claim, but it would be a rewording of it through the defamation libel slander approach. Anyway, that's just a few words on insurance, uh, a lot more to that. I think, Casey, I think we're kind of at, at, at the close here for the listeners. Any final thoughts that you want to offer on, on 
sort of takeaways? Yeah, thank you, Todd. So, you know, if I'm senior management, general counsel, and I just listen to, you know, a 20-minute podcast on everything that's happening in the greenwashing issue, litigation, enforcement push, I'm sitting here wondering what are some proactive steps I could take and what type of analysis do I need to be performing in my duty to, to protect my business? So just a couple pointers that I think are, are crucial here uh, moving forward is, first, the line is not always clear between aggressive marketing and what would be considered greenwashing by a court. So senior management really must be involved and take a closer look at what's coming out of a company's marketing department or what's being said in a company's sustainability report published at the end of the year. Secondly, I think it's it's really important to consider your statements as a business. Are they affirmative? What are the labels in your products saying? And really scrutinize those issues in the context of, of greenwashing risks. So are you consistently claiming that a product or a business practice is sustainable? Are you in that statement actually evaluate, evaluating all relevant factors that would allow you to make that claim? Are you saying that your product or, or your business is, quote, carbon neutral? Well, how are you backing that up? Is your data validated by an outside source? And recognizing that that alone may not even be enough. So really considering aspirational versus, you know, guarantees with, with your products and, and your statements ab- about the business, you know, I think is important. Well, I, I think the the only other thing I would say is I've got three greenwashing claims going on right now. And, and every single one of them, there was lack of clear communication between people in, in the C-suite and the people who are kind of implementing the day-to-day management operations of the business and the, the marketing department. So it's really just a re-emphasis on good communications. And if you're going to make some broad statement, have you really thought through the ramifications of that when it's played out at the kind of the micro level? And then finally, just kind of reiterating the insurance component that I touched on at the end there, that there are some ways to manage uh, these risks, to mitigate these risks, but you may want to sit down and, and either go through your existing policies or you know talk with, with counsel or a broker about uh, strategic use of those policies or maybe expansion by a rider that will cover these types of claims because we think they're on the rise. So I think with that, we'll, we'll wrap it up. We thank everyone for your, your time listening in the uh, Energy Explored program. We have a, a variety of podcasts already out there and we are constantly putting more programs out for review and availability and we hope we, you will listen in. Thank you all. Take care. Energy Explored is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice, please email energyexplored at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com. 
and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.